Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. We're finishing Ephesians today. Anybody? How good is that? It's always good to finish a, a book of the Bible. Um, we're finishing up today. Ephesians 6, 21 through 24. Letter of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the capital city of Ephesus. Paul wrote this while he was under house arrest in Rome, and he wrote it to lay a solid doctrinal foundation for these believers so that they could then live out those doctrines for the glory of God. And we're now at the end of this amazing letter, and it's been very good, and it's been very challenging. And the call is to rise to the challenge for the glory of God because we love Him and because He alone is worthy. Recently, Paul made it clear that we're in a spiritual battle And the call in this spiritual battle is to stand strong, to dig in, and to hold our ground, to be immovable and steadfast in the face of a relentless and ruthless foe, to put on the full spiritual armor of God every single day, and to wage a good warfare against the devil, our wily, ruthless, wicked, powerful, and hateful enemy. The good news is that we can indeed wage a good warfare when we put on our spiritual armor. So wisdom says to put on that armor and once you put it on to never take it off. Because we want to be good wrestlers. We want to be good soldiers for the Lord. We want to please God and we want to assault the wicked one. So stand up and fight. That's the call. The picture here is of a fully armored Roman soldier. And Paul uses this physical picture to show us the spiritual reality. Paul focused on six indispensable items for any successful soldier. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes which are the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation which speaks of our future hope, and then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then after that, Paul added a seventh non-clothing item, prayer, which really encompasses everything else, which then completes the full outfit for any good spiritual soldier. Now sadly, and I, I am sad about this, we come to Paul's concluding remarks that end this letter. All right, let's look, verse 21. But that you also may know my affairs and how I'm doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now please remember, Paul's writing this letter while he's under house arrest in Rome, chained to a guard 24-7. Couldn't have been easy, right? I mean, couldn't have been easy, not, not in any way. On top of that, Paul's getting older. He's already suffered much for the cause of Christ. Beaten, shipwrecked, snake-bitten, imprisoned more than once, stoned, scourged, and so on. And his health couldn't have been good, let alone all the aches and all the pains of a very hard life. From the book of Philippians, which was written during this same imprisonment, we learned that fellow Christians in Rome were attacking Paul. But as we saw last week, Paul's only prayer was that he would be bold in proclaiming the gospel, the very thing that got him thrown into prison in the first place. And then look, even when it comes to saying goodbye, Paul's focus is on these Christians and on their needs, not on his. And we're going to see that. Paul 
really is an amazing, incredible man of God. So, having discussed the calling of the church in chapters 1 through 3, what the church needs to believe, and then having discussed the conduct of the church in chapters 4 through 6, how the church ought to live out that belief and how they ought to live out that doctrine, Paul now gives a short conclusion to this letter. Remember, Ephesians 1 through 3 dealt with the root, while Ephesians 4 through 6 dealt with the fruit. Ephesians 1 through 3 dealt with the position of the believer, while Ephesians 4 through 6 deals with, dealt with the practice of the believer. Ephesians 1 through 3 dealt with Christian revelation, while Ephesians 4 through 6 dealt with Christian responsibility. And now, here we are at the end of the letter. Look what he says. First, Paul sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Why did he do that? So that the Ephesian Christians will know of Paul's affairs and so that they will know how he's doing. See, this man Tychicus will provide the Ephesian believers further information about Paul's circumstances, how he's doing, how he's feeling, how how his ministry is going there in Rome even though he's in prison, how he's faring while he's under house arrest and so on. And as these Ephesian Christians love Paul dearly, they would certainly want to know all these things. Remember? Remember Paul's relationship with them? Ephesus, if you remember, was a famous seaport city. It was the most important Roman commercial city in Asia Minor. And it was renowned for its wretched paganism. So Paul, along with that amazing couple, Aquila and Priscilla, they made sure that they stopped by this city at the end of Paul's second missionary journey, Acts 19.19. There, he preached the gospel in the synagogue, but since Paul was in a hurry to go to Jerusalem, he left godly Aquila and Priscilla to minister to the needy souls in Ephesus, which they were very faithful to do. In fact, they hosted a congregation of Christians for about four or five years, teaching, strengthening, grounding them in the word of God and and loving them. In Acts 19, though, Paul made his way back to Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and this time he was able to stay for three years in Ephesus. Think about that. Ministering to these souls and helping to establish them even more in the faith. After Aquila and Priscilla and Paul left, Timothy then came and pastored the church at Ephesus for another year and a half. Even so, Ministry in Ephesus wasn't easy. So Paul writes this letter to the Christians in Ephesus to ground them even more in their faith because guess what? Harder times are coming, right? So Paul wrote Ephesians to establish these souls even more in the Word and in good theology and in good doctrine. Why? So that they would live it out and so that they would stand strong, even stronger for the glory of God. So again, This letter was written while Paul was under house arrest in Rome, which is where he ended up at the end of Acts chapter 28. Paul also wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon during this period of time while he's in prison in Rome. He loved these Christians, right? He knew them well. And he wants them to know how he's doing so that they could be comforted and so they could be encouraged in their faith. So what then does he do? He sends Tychicus. It's interesting to note that verses 21 and 22 are incredibly similar to Colossians 4, 7, and 8. In fact, a total of 32 words are exactly the same. So what then does this mean? 
People have different theories about that, and some are really wacky. But I believe it was probably the case that Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians right at the same time, or that Paul still had that first letter in front of him while he was writing the other one. The belief then is that Tychicus was sent out from Rome by Paul, and that he took both of those letters with him when he went to Asia Minor, along with the letter of Philemon. But here, look, Paul is not only sending his letter to the Ephesians, but he's sending Tychicus to the Ephesians. Yes, he's going to bring that letter, but he's also going to bring himself. And this is a sacrifice for Paul. This is a real sacrifice for Paul because Tychicus was ministering to Paul in Rome, which was very much needed. And now Paul would be deprived of this dear brother's presence in his life. And all this shows us how much Paul loved these Christians in Ephesus. It also shows us something about Tychicus. I mean, this trip wouldn't be an easy trip from Rome to Ephesus. That's not an easy trip, not back then. In fact, it would have taken four to six months over land and sea to make this trip. But he did it. And that says a lot about this amazing man of God. Tychicus is mentioned five times in the Bible. In Acts 20, Paul was taking some money to the needed church in Jerusalem, and Tychicus was one of the eight men who accompanied Paul on this very important mission. Later on, Tychicus was with Paul during his first Roman imprisonment, as we see here in Ephesians. And again, he was entrusted with the mission of delivering the letter uh, to the Ephesians and also the letter to the Colossians, which was a very, very important mission. Note that Onesimus, the newly saved runaway slave of Philemon, was also with Tychicus, along with the letter of Philemon, and Onesimus was now returning to his master that he ran away from, who was residing in Coloss. See, Paul wanted Philemon to forgive Onesimus and to set him free in Christian forgiveness and love. And Tychicus was acting on Paul's behalf, who would be able to mediate between the slave and his owner for Paul. This was a massive responsibility But Tychicus was the man to do it. It says a lot about him. Tychicus is also mentioned in Titus 3.12, which tells us that Tychicus was one of two men that Paul purposed to send to relieve Titus in the oversight of the churches on the island of Crete. Later on after that, during Paul's second imprisonment, and not long before Paul died, Tychicus was sent out by Paul, guess where? To Ephesus where he would care for the Christians in this city just a few years from now, about AD 67, which would then free up Timothy to rejoin Paul, who desperately wanted to see Timothy before Paul met his fate as a martyr for the gospel of Christ. Don't you see? Tychicus was an amazing man, a man of God, a reliable man, a faithful man, a useful man, a Christ-exalting man who is willing to do some very hard things and some very dangerous things for the glory of God. Look how Paul describes Tychicus. First, Paul says that Tychicus is a beloved brother. The word brother literally means those who are born from the same womb. It describes our identity as fellow Christians. We are family. That's who we are. We are family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the same heavenly father and he unites us intimately together. And that is a, an amazing truth. 
We were dead, but he made us alive. And now we who believe are heirs of the grace of life. We are co-heirs with Christ. We're part of the same family, the family of God. And again, that's an amazing reality. So look, because Christ, God the Son, left heaven, came here, took on human flesh, 100% God and 100% man at the same time, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in the believer's place, taking their sin, our sin, upon himself and paying the full wages of all that sin in our place on the cross. And then he died a brutal death on that cross so we who believe wouldn't have to pay sin's wages in hell forever. And he then rose up from the dead three days later. And because he did all that, And because we have surrendered to Him in true, saving, repentant faith, look, everyone who's done that, we are now God's beloved children. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Hey, that's a reality whether you like it or not. That's who we are. We're part of God's eternal family. Isn't that amazing? As Ephesians 2.19 says, we are now citizens with the saints. We are members of the household of God. Think about that. Heaven's our true home. Can't wait. We belong to God. We're His beloved children. He's our loving Father who cares deeply and passionately for us. Commentators describe Christians as a reconciled third race of humanity who have the same Father. So now there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but now in Christ, we're just one big family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And look, every earthly family's messed up. Am I right? Right? Every earthly family's messed up. We're all messed up because we're all sinners. And some of you here right now have come out of some very hard and rough and and sinful households. But the good news is that in Christ, God says, I'm your father now. (laughs) And I am good. And I love you more than you could ever think or imagine. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I will never let you down. And I will only and always do what's best for your eternal soul. You are mine. I chose you. I adopted you. I wanted you. I made you my own. And I will keep you as mine forever. And while this new race is made up of a bunch of saved sinners, it won't always be like that. And in glory, we will all be made perfect. How good is that? And we will have oh so much to look forward to as citizens of heaven and as members of God's own household, God's own family. That's why we can call other believers our brothers and sisters, because we are. (laughs) We are. Paul uses the term brother to describe Tychicus in order to emphasize the love and the unity and the oneness that they have as as fellow believers. Beloved in front of it, which means dearly loved, very much loved and well loved, that emphasizes even more their unity and their Christian brotherhood. So, Tychicus is a beloved brother, but look, Paul also says that he's a faithful minister. Oh, that that would be said about all of us here. He is a faithful minister. The word faithful here means dependable, trustworthy, steadfast, and unswerving. It describes a Christian who's saved by faith, who then actively and ardently lives out that faith. He can be relied on, see? He will follow through. He'll do what he says he will do. He will keep his promise. He he can be depended on. He's not going to let you down. He's a faithful minister. 
The word minister is from the word doulos in the Greek, the word for bondservant or slave. The word describes an individual who is bound to another in servitude. See, the doulos belonged to his master, he was obligated to his master, and his whole desire in life was to permanently do the will of his master. Paul often used this word to describe himself in relation to God, and here, Paul uses this word to describe Tychicus, and it's a great description, especially with the word faithful in front of it. Look, the true minister or bondservant was consumed in the will of his master. He said, whatever you want, Lord, it's not about me, it's all about you. I'm not my own anymore, I'm gladly yours, Lord, have your way with me, Lord. You own me now, Lord, you have the rights to my life, for I, I owe you my very soul. I am no longer a slave to sin, but gladly I'm a slave to you, Lord, my good master, and my will is to do your will, to serve you, Lord, to obey you, Lord, because I love you, Lord. That's the idea. Not oppressive slavery, no, but glad submission and faithful service. See, the bondservant has no life of his own, no will of his own, no purpose of his own, and no plan of his own. No. The bondservant's every thought, breath, and effort was to be subject to the will of his master. The word speaks of absolute surrender to the Lord, and that's how Paul saw Tychicus, a a faithful minister, a a faithful bondservant of the Lord. What a compliment. I mean, For any Christian to have that said about you, what a compliment. I mean, look what Christ has done for us. He delivered us, think about this, He delivered us from eternal hell. He moved us from Satan's grip to His. He's given us a reason to live. He's given us true peace and hope and joy and meaning in life. Come on. Nothing else matters in light of who he is and what he's done for us. And now, the only real proper response should be, I'm yours, Lord. I'm all yours, your loving servant. You died for me, so I faithfully serve you. See, that's how it works. That was Tychicus. I pray that's all of us, for our good God is indeed worthy. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And I pray However, that there are many faithful servants and many faithful laborers here. Now look, look what Tychicus was called to do. First, he was called to make known Paul's affairs. In other words, Tychicus is going to tell the concerned Christians in Ephesus how Paul's doing while he's in prison under house arrest in Rome. What would Tychicus have said? Well, probably what Paul said to the Philippian Christians in Philippians 1, 12 through 14, which was written about the same time as Ephesians was written. Look what Paul wrote there, Philippians 1, 12. I want you to know, brethren, that, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, just as Paul wrote these words to the Philippian Christians, so would Tychicus have passed on the same words of encouragement to the Christians in Ephesus. Paul's good. Paul's good. He's all good. And writing it down or having someone pass on that information um, gets the job done either way. And here... Paul wants Tychicus to personally inform the Ephesians of his affairs. So he didn't write down how he's doing. Tychicus will tell them. What would he have said 
Well, like he wrote, the gospel's spreading. That the guards that Paul is chained to, they're really chained to Paul. Right? Because they have to hear him preach the gospel and talk about Christ all the time. And they're chained to him. They can't get away from him. And they all know that Paul is in prison in Rome because of Christ. So they're all hearing the truth of God all the time. On top of that, Christians are becoming more bold to speak the truth of God without fear because of Paul's godly example. So God is using Paul to be the means of both saving the lost and of encouraging the saved. Paul is all good. No, it's not easy. No, it's not easy at all. But as Paul wrote in Philippians, even though he doesn't know if he's going to come out of this alive, hey, he's okay with that. As long as God is glorified, he's good. He's also content in God's good providence. Another thing that Paul wrote to the Philippians So Paul trusts God. He knows that God has him right where he wants him in prison. The gospel's going out and impacting the lost and the saved are growing in their faith with boldness and and Paul is content in God. Yes, keep praying for him, but his affairs, his circumstances, his condition is good because he trusts the Lord and he's faithful where God has him knowing that God wants him there. Isn't that good? That's all information that we find in Philippians, which has a lot more personal information in it than Ephesians does. And Tychicus would have certainly relayed all of this information to these Ephesian believers. It's a good lesson for all of us, isn't it? Be faithful where God has you. Exalt Christ where God has you. Trust God where He has you. Be content and glorify Him where He has you, because He has you where He has you for a reason. So be faithful. It's a good lesson. Second, Tychicus was called to comfort their hearts. The Greek word used here is parakaleo, which means to come alongside to help. The word describes someone coming up to you, putting their arm around you, and speaking into your ear words of comfort, encouragement, consolation, and assurance. See, Paul knew that the Ephesians needed that kind of comfort. Comfort. Remember what he wrote in 3.13? Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So as Paul knew that they were prone to lose heart when they thought about Paul and all his trials, Tychicus was called to counteract that by giving them words of comfort and words of encouragement. Try to picture the Christians in Ephesus losing heart. Try to put yourself in their situation. The word for lose heart is a very interesting word because the root of the word means to do evil, to cause damage, or to handle with harm. The word later changed in its meaning a bit from behaving badly to simply becoming tired, becoming careless, to becoming weary, which then leads to bad, harmful, hurtful, evil behavior. See, it describes someone who just throws up their hands and gives up and gives in. It describes someone who's just spiritually weary, and so they surrender to their flesh, to their temptations, to the evils of the world, to the tugs of the devil. See, they're discouraged, so they are no longer careful in their behavior, but they're careless, spiritually speaking, and they yield themselves over to the enemy and to the ways of the enemy. They compromise, they give up in their discouragement, they spiritually shrink back. The Ephesians were on the verge of doing this. So Paul says, no, stop it. (laughs) 
Don't do that when you look at me and when you look at my tribulations. And he sends Tychicus to also encourage them to stay faithful. I mean, think about it. It couldn't have been easy for these Gentile Ephesian believers. Some of them must have wondered whether their commitment to God was really worth it. Their faith to have uh, had to have stood out in the pagan city of Ephesus with all their past friends not suffering as they worship the wretched false god Artemis. They are doing fine. We are struggling. We are losing friends. We are angering all the people around us. We are angering the Romans as we refuse to bow down to their false idols. And then look at Paul suffering in prison in Rome. This is so discouraging. And Paul's like, no. No, no way, because God knows what he's doing. And he's working all this out. And we can trust him even when we are in prison and even when those hard times are assailing us. Focus and trust him. And always remember that the church of which every believer is a part is the plan. It's the church is the plan and God is working even when the tribulations come and especially when the tribulations come. So don't be discouraged. No, look beyond and be greatly encouraged. God knows what he's doing. Be faithful. Tychicus was to remind them of those great truths. Second Corinthians 4.16, Paul says that we in Christ don't lose heart, not ever. And even though the outer man is perishing, anybody? No, just me? Okay. Even though we face affliction, look, the soul of the person is what matters, and we can always cultivate that. And eternal glory is awaiting every true believer, and it's the things that are unseen that truly matter, for the things which are seen are temporary, and the things which are unseen are eternal. So, hey, don't be discouraged. And he's absolutely right. And Tychicus was called to comfort and encourage the Ephesian believers with the truth of God. Hey, encouragement's good. Anybody? I like encouragement. In Acts 4.36, we met a guy named Joseph or Joseph. That's the only time that he's referred to as Joseph. Why? Because from very early on, he was given a nickname by the apostles. Anybody remember? Good. Someone, thank you. Barnabas. Come on, you guys. Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement. Think about that. That's what they called him from that time onward. Why? Because that's exactly what he did. He comforted others. He encouraged others. He was a blessing to others. He had a heart for the people around him, and that heart clearly showed. What a nickname, right? The son of encouragement. You know that encouragement is a main ministry of the Holy Spirit? See, all Christians are to be encouragers, particularly of those who are weak and struggling in the faith. And encouragement is a vital ministry in the church, because guess what? We all struggle. We all do. Keep going. We need to hear that. Keep, stay faithful. Let me help you in any way I can. Let's pray together. Let's walk with you through your trial. I'm here for you. Get up and keep pursuing the Lord. Stop wallowing around. Get up. Keep pursuing the Lord. Lean on me. Stay focused to the very end. The goal, Him. Look ahead. Never, ever, ever quit. God is good. Even when life is hard, I'm here to remind you of that. Stay faithful to the end because He is always, always, always worth it. 
What a needed ministry in the church amongst the people of God. Hey, we have enough discouragers in our lives. We need more encouragers in the faith. How about you? The Ephesian believers needed some comfort and they needed some encouragement and so Tychicus was sent to them. He's a good example for us all. The second fact to note as we look at this is that Paul concluded the letter of Ephesians. Look how he concludes. First, peace to the brethren, verse 23. Look, our God is a God of peace and He's the one who brings us true, eternal peace. What is peace? The word peace literally means to set at one again and to join or bind together that which has been separated. Peace is the opposite of division and dissension. It's a state of being in harmony as opposed to being at war. And God's the one who brings true peace. Talking about first being at peace with God, which means absolutely everything. It means you're saved, you're, you're, you're forgiven, you're going to heaven. That means everything. And then Because we are at peace with God and we've been saved, we then have His peace in our souls. The world doesn't have that peace, not even close. The world can't have true peace because they've rejected the God of peace. But we in Christ have that in a way that passes all worldly understanding. I mean, it's overflowing. It fills us to the brim. It's abundant. It's like a flood, or at least it should be. All because we've surrendered to Christ in repentant faith. And because we have Christ... Peace with God and peace for my soul. One said, fret not, he loves you. Faint not, he holds you. Fear not, he keeps you. And that's right. Many people think that a good picture of peace is a tranquil mountain lake with the sun shining and the birds chirping. A better picture of peace, however, is a painting of a turbulent waterfall, rough and violent. The sky's cloudy and gray, threatening and ominous. And in the midst of this raging waterfall and looming storm, there's this spindly tree that clings to the rocks at the edge of that waterfall. And look, in the elbow of one of the branches that's reaching out to the torrents of the waterfall, a little bird has built her nest. And as that storm looms and as that waterfall pours down, this little bird is in her nest as content as could be, undisturbed by her surroundings as she quietly closes her eyes and covers her eggs. That's a good picture of the peace that we in Christ have. All is well between me and God. Therefore, all is well. I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know where I'm going when I die. The eternal city awaits me. And even though these storms surround me, the God of peace calls me his own so that then, what then is there for me to fear? Peace. All because of the Lord. So peace to the brethren, that's absolutely right. It's a great benediction to fearful, restless hearts. Peace. Irenes in the Greek Shalom in the Hebrew. God's peace be upon you. What a comfort. What a reminder to us all. So first, Paul says, peace out. That's what he says. Second, Paul says, peace, and then love with faith from God the Father. Love with faith. What does that mean? Is Paul talking about your love or is Paul talking about God's love? He's talking about God's love because it says, from God the Father. So, He's desiring that they taste God's love in fuller measure, the love that He freely and graciously gives out to all of His beloved children. Hey, 
Christian, God, hear me out. God loves you intensely. You hear that? Intensely. He loves you with a specific love, a covenant love, a family love, a distinct love for you personally. The word for love here is a Greek word, agape. This kind of love is specific for Christians only, for this speaks of God's unconditional, sacrificial, covenant love. One said, agape love speaks of a love called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the one loved, us in Christ. A love that impels one to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of the object loved. It's a love shown at Calvary, and that's absolutely right. And again, this kind of love is specific for Christians only, for the beloved of God, that's who we are, for his children that he purposefully and specifically died for to save for us. In Ephesians 2.4, Paul mentions God's great love with which he loved us, and that's good to remember. He not only loves us, but he loves us with a great love, and don't we know it? Right? See, God's agape love for you, his child, is perfect right now. It's a perfect love right now. He will never love you any more or any less than he does right now because he loves you fully and perfectly right now. And while your actions can glorify him, honor him, and be well-pleasing to him, yes, or else while they can grieve him and sadden him, look, they won't affect his agape love for you because he loves you perfectly and it's real and it is intense. Isn't that incredible? If I'm good, he loves me more. If I'm bad, he loves me less. No, that's not true. He loves you with a perfect love right now. It's incredible. How much does he love us? How about this? He gave himself for us to save us. Talk about love. In Romans 5, 7, Paul writes, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. So the question is, how many people are you willing to die for? A few, right? A few. Your parents, your children, your husband, your wife, a few, yes. Well, Romans 5, 7 tells us that God's love isn't like that. And as great as it is when a person will die for another person, God's love is much greater. And God went far beyond what any of us would do. I mean, we would never think of doing what he did. Romans 5, 8 goes on and says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So he died for us when we were his enemies. Now think about that. Christ didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. He died for those who crucified him. He died for those who hated him. He died for those who rejected him. He died for those who cheered as the nails were driven into his hands. He didn't die for good people. No, he died for bad people, us. He didn't die for saints. He died for sinners. He didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. He didn't die for people who loved him. He died for people who hated him. That's love. He gave himself for us, his enemies, to save us and make us his beloved adopted children. That's love. And it was costly. It was brutal. It was painful. It was bloody. It was wretched. It was excruciating. But he still did it for us so that we could be saved for all eternity. That's love. (laughs) Sometimes in this ugly lost world, people say, where's the love of God? We have so much killing and heartache and tragedy and pain and anger. Where's the love of God? Here's the love of God. Look at the cross. There you see the love of God. 
gaze upon the bleeding form of the Son of God dying, facing the Father's divine wrath for us, for you. That's love. God loves you intensely. And that's good to remember. God's love was fixed upon us. It flowed out to us His people freely. And it's beyond comprehension. How awesome is that? Uh, Why mention this here at the end of Ephesians? Because, here's why. Because it gives us perspective. Because if we could understand the amazing love of God more fully then we wouldn't be as prone as we are to wavering, to discouragement, and to sin. See, this love gives us perspective. This love raises us above our trials. This love comforts us in our lonely hours and in our seasons of sickness and in our seasons of sorrow. And this love inspires us to be courageous and bold and godly because a God like this is worthy, infinitely worthy of our passionate love in return, right? Love with faith. Okay, why add faith? Because it's in faith that we understand God's great love. Because part of me, I mean, it's unfathomable. I can't understand it, right? I mean, I can't understand why he loves us as much as he loves us. But at the same time, he tells us this in his holy word, and we trust him, and we trust that he loves us this much because he says it. And we believe what he says because he's reliable, Look, it comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's also mentioned at the beginning of this letter in 1-2. So Paul begins and ends the letter by singling out two of the three persons of the Godhead. See, according to the Bible, we worship one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here, Paul highlights the first two persons of the Godhead. We say, oh, what about the Holy Spirit? Poor Holy Spirit. Well, I don't think he feels slighted. I don't. He was mentioned many times throughout the letter of Ephesians. But that phrase, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, is important. And it stresses Christ's deity and his equality with the Father, which is a vital and important doctrine to get right. So, just as the Father is God, the first person of the Trinity, so too is Jesus, the Son, God, the second person of the Trinity. And Paul makes sure to say this, how they're of the same substance, how they're of the same essence, God, and to remind the readers to not take their eyes off of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our God, God the Son specifically, who died on a cross to rescue undeserving sinners like us. Third, Paul concludes by saying, grace to all who love Jesus. Verse 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Isn't that a good way to end? So for every true Christian, for every truly saved soul, or another way to put it, for everyone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, that's who we are, right? That's who we are? In true love, in sincerity and undiminished love, in incorruptible love, in real heartfelt love that that endures, for every true Christian, grace to you. That's That's a great statement right there. Grace, what a word. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor towards sinners who don't remotely deserve it. Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Grace is God's generous favor to undeserving sinners and to needy saints. Grace is all God's power, all His love, all His beauty available to you, the undeserving sinner. Grace is an incredible term which wraps up all that God is 
and all that God offers to us. And Christians are those who have been lavished, I mean, lavished with God's amazing grace that saves them, that sustains them, and that keeps them. Talking about that's who we are. What a great way to end this letter. Grace to you. God's amazing grace to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful letter of Ephesians that applies so directly to each of our lives today. Even in the end, the benediction of this letter, we see so many truths that uh, apply to us. And even in that last word, grace to you, oh, how true that is. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us life when we were dead. Thank you for all the great truths in Ephesians. I pray that we would live these truths out more, that they would sink into our heads and into our hearts, and that we would earnestly put these into practice because you are worthy because we love you so very much. Bless each soul here. Bless us as we go out. Use us for your glory. May we be great encouragers of the brethren today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.